Welcome to Noir Talk, a podcast devoted to discussing the nonprofit Film Noir Foundation. I'm your host, Hagai Litsur. Noir City Denver makes its Colorado debut at the Alamo Drafthouse Cinema in Littleton, March 23rd to 25th, with six classic film noirs, co-programmed and co-hosted by FNF founder and president Eddie Muller, and noted crime fiction author and FNF advisory board member James Elroy. One of Elroy's favorite noirs kicks off the festival, Joseph Losey's The Prowler, a 35mm restoration funded by the FNF in conjunction with the Stanford Theatre Foundation with an able assist from Elroy. Don Siegel's 1958 San Francisco set noir The Lineup, featuring an unforgettable performance by Eli Wallach, rounds out the night. Saturday's programming begins with Ken Hughes' Brit Noir, Wicked As They Come, with Arlene Dahl. The racket noir 7-Eleven Ocean Drive, starring Edmund O'Brien and directed by Joseph M. Newman, follows. On the final day of the festival, Kirk Douglas squares off against Burt Lancaster and Elizabeth Scott in Byron Haskins' I Walk Alone. Noir City Denver closes with He Walked By Night, shot by the legendary cinematographer John Alton. And now, let's talk to our guest for this month. Life was dark when the sky was blue. Down the alley, ice wagon flew. Hit a bump and somebody screamed. You should have heard just what I see. Who do you love? Who do you love? Who do you love? Who do you love? Arlene took me by my hand. She said, Who we both, you know, I understand. Who do you love? Who do you love? Who do you love? Our guest this month is Steve Cronenberg, the co-managing editor of the FNF's Noir City e-magazine. His brother Michael, who's the art director for the Noir City magazine, was our guest on this podcast last year in episode 5. Steve, let's start with how you came to work on the magazine, which goes back to another classic movie magazine that you and Michael worked on for many years prior to joining Noir City. Yes, Michael and I worked on a classic horror magazine called Monsters from the Vault, and we worked on it with a third fellow who was our co-publisher. We started in 1995, and all three of us shared a love for the old horror films. I remember them as a kid, staying up late and watching them on late-night television with Zachary, who was our local horror show host in New York, along with a lot of friends of mine, and I just developed a tremendous love for the old horror films, and I still love them. Michael developed a love for them later on, and the three of us collaborated, and we thought we'd start a magazine and we would call it Monsters from the Vault, and we'd focus on the old horror films, and we'd try to take an intelligent approach to them, a critical approach, not really academic, but taking it seriously, as opposed to another magazine which pioneered the classic horror books called Famous Monsters of Filmland, which was very famous and edited by a fellow named Forrest J. Ackerman. But Ackerman, while he was a great collector and shared a lot of his memorabilia and stills with readers from the magazine, treated the films a little less seriously than we wanted to, uh, captioned his photos with puns and bad jokes, and we wanted to get away from that and focus a little more on serious aspect of the horror films and model our magazine after another magazine that had come out in the early 60s called Castle of Frankenstein. So I started editing, co-publishing, and writing for the magazine, doing book reviews, and Michael did the graphic design and did a beautiful job with it. Um, what I wanted to do as a writer was to focus on the people that were not being covered by the other magazines. There were enough articles out there about Boris Karloff and Bela Lugosi and Lon Chaney and directors like James Whale. 
I wanted to focus on the unsung heroes behind the scenes. So I wrote articles about the art directors and the camera people and obscure actors and actresses that were not covered by the mainstream magazines and by the other monster magazines. Uh, a lot of people felt that we were just going to be a one-shot. We thought we were going to be a one-shot. Um, there were some people that were a little patronizing and said, oh, you want to form a magazine, do you? Kind of like Judy Garland and Mickey Rooney doing the stage show in the backyard. And they kind of shrugged us off, but we ended up being pretty successful with it. And the magazine went on for about 20 years. Michael and I jumped off the magazine maybe 10 years ago. It continued without us, but we had a lot of fun doing it when we were with it. And I enjoyed doing the writing and the book reviews. That's kind of how I got started writing for film, which was something that I always wanted to do and never really had a chance to do until then. And that sounds pretty familiar, the way you described the magazine, the particular aspect you all were going for of covering certain things that were not really dealt with in other magazines or other publications, familiar in terms of Noir City. That, kind of, that sounds like the approach that a Film Noir Foundation has taken with its uh, magazine for many years. And we're going to talk about some of the articles you wrote that fit into that very well. So last year when Michael was on with us, um, on the episode we did with him, he talked about his uh, origin story, if you will, like from comic books of how he... Um, first answered uh, Eddie Muller's advertisement for a graphic designer and threw himself into it in a couple of hours and ended up getting the gig that way. So then he ended up contacting you, I guess, a couple of years later with, hey, there's an opening for uh, editing the magazine, and uh, naturally you're interested in that. It was actually doing me a favor. His actual quote to Eddie was, if you don't hire me to do the graphic design for your magazine, you'll regret it for the rest of your life, unquote. Um, so... He sent his samples to Eddie, and Eddie very quickly hired him to do the graphic design for the magazine. In 2012, when I retired from the practice of law, I was talking to Michael, and I said to Michael, well, I'm really glad that I retired. I'm really glad to be getting out of this, but what do I do now? And he said, well, why don't you pick up the writing pen again and start writing for Noir City? And I thought, well, that would be great. And... I submitted an article. The first article I submitted to Noir City involved Edgar G. Almer's remake of Detour. Um, I had gotten by way of auction the script that he wrote for a 1969 remake to Detour that he wanted to do, setting it in the counterculture 1960s in San Francisco. And I read the script, and it was absolutely faithful to the original Detour, for which he didn't write the screenplay. But for this one, he wrote the screenplay, and he wanted to direct it, and he wanted Peter Bogdanovich to produce it. The script came up for auction. I was able to get a hold of it. And I, I talked to Michael, and he said, why don't you write an article about this script? I don't think very many people know that Ulmer wanted to remake Detour. So that's how I got my start with Noir City and with the foundation. Yeah, I'm betting there were almost no people who had ever heard that fact before. It was really fascinating, the history of Detour you covered there, and there are all these different versions of it that have happened over exactly. the years. Exactly. I also did a little sidebar on the remake of Detour that was done by a guy named Wade Williams, I think in 2004, and I was able to conduct an interview with Leah Lavish, um, who played Vera in the remake of Detour. She was the only one in it that made the film worth watching. And she was very good. The rest of the film, 
I'd say don't waste your time. <laughs> so let's talk about uh, let's talk a bit about your article, "Dancing in the Dark: Rock, Roll, and Noir," from the summer 2015 music issue of Noir City. And that article begins: "Rock and roll and noir can be rambunctious bedmates. Both crossed cultural boundaries previously unexplored. Both often focus on love ruined by deceit and betrayal. Both thrive in the dark and on the edge." The classic rock years of the 1950s through the 1970s produced a treasure trove of noir-fueled music. Then you go on to detail a number of songs from that era with lyrics that are about as noir as anything written by the likes of Raymond Chandler or Cornell Woolrich, which was really eye-opening for me. I've been a huge classic rock fan since childhood, but I have to say, until you spelled it all out in this article from a few years ago, I'd never really made that connection before between classic rock lyrics and, uh, and film noir. So what was it that inspired you to mine the golden age of rock and roll for all those themes that connect with these old movies? I've always loved the edgier side of rock and roll. It's not so much that I don't like the upbeat dance music. I do. And upbeat songs about romance, teenagers, cars, parties, and getting girls. But there was an edgy, dark, ominous side to rock and roll, too. In the 50s, it was really embodied by, in my opinion, by Bo Diddley. The 50s had its share of rock and roll pioneers, and all of them were brilliant. Elvis, Buddy Holly, Chuck Berry, Little Richard, um, all of them were absolutely, absolute geniuses when it came to writing music and capturing the essence of rock and roll. But Bo Diddley had this edgier, darker side to him. He was singing about things and writing about things that those other artists were not writing about. All of them had a very upbeat approach to rock and roll and an upbeat approach to life. Bo Diddley was a dangerous guy, and he wrote dangerous lyrics and dangerous music. Supernatural stuff. Um, Who Do You Love is probably the best example of that. He, is, he comes on like a force of nature, like a predator almost. And he's bragging to this woman about how invulnerable he is and how mighty he is. And how dare you not love me, almost how dare you not worship me, because I can walk 47 miles of barbed wire. I have a cobra snake for a necktie. I ride around with a rattlesnake whip. I got a skull on top of my house. Don't give me no lip. Who do you love? As in, don't you dare not love me. (laughs) So that's about as noir as it gets when it comes to rock and roll lyrics. Um, There's one line in that song that, is basically Cornell Woolrich. The night was dark and the sky was blue. Down the alleyway, an ice wagon flew, hit a bump, and somebody screamed, you should have heard just what I've seen. Try to make sense of it. It's dense, it's dark, it's diabolical, and it's pure rock and roll. Not the rock and roll that Elvis was singing, not the rock and roll Chuck Berry was singing about, or Little Richard. A different form of rock and roll. The interesting thing about Bo Diddley was he was way ahead of his time because he wasn't singing about things that teenagers could directly relate to, like those other artists. He never cracked the top 20. His songs never cracked the top 20. They weren't hits. He didn't sell millions of records. He was, in my opinion, as I said, far ahead of his time, singing songs and writing lyrics that people really weren't able to relate to back then. 
And his great hit, Who Do You Love? Well, we heard a little snippet of that at the beginning of this segment. Um, the lyrics you mentioned, the night was dark and the sky was blue. That's a really great verse. And uh, as you said, about as noir as it gets. Uh, a few of the other songs you covered, or a couple of those songs you covered in your article, wanted to mention those as we'll be hearing some of these throughout this episode. Um, of course, it's a great article that you wrote, and I gravitated to it for this episode because I wanted to play a lot of these great songs. Um, so there was uh, The Animals had some very noir lyrics, in particular with their hit, We Gotta Get Out of This Place. Um, starts off with, uh, in this dirty old part of the city where the sun refused to shine, people tell me there ain't no use in trying. That sounds pretty noir. And then it goes on with, now my girl, you're so young and pretty, and the one thing I know is true, you'll be dead before your time is due. That's pretty dark for a mid-1960s rock and roll hit. It sure is. Uh, the animals, along with the Rolling Stones, I like to describe as the anti-Beatles. The Beatles were purveying some very sunny, very upbeat, very romantic pop music back in 1964-65 when they hit the scene and Beatlemania became all the rage. And a lot of British groups followed in their path. They were poseurs and they jumped on the Beatle bandwagon and produced music that was almost strikingly identical to what the Beatles were doing. But the Stones and the Animals were entirely different. They were on the other side of the tracks. These were guys that were very much plugged into rhythm and blues, to the old blues artists, and the animals were a perfect example. Eric Burden was born and grew up in Newcastle, the coal mining town in England. He saw the smoke, he saw the dirt, he saw everything that he's singing about in We Gotta Get Out of This Place, which, by the way, was not written by Burden, it was written by Barry Mann and Cynthia Weil, two of the greatest songwriters that ever lived, came out of the Brill Building in New York along with several other great songwriting teams who eventually got inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. But Burden sings that song and makes it his own. In addition to Burden producing a fantastic blues-based lyric, uh, you've got a great hook in that song by Chaz Chandler's bass line, because if you listen to the song from the beginning, that bass line introduces you to the song. It becomes the hook that catches you and takes you right away and it's that ominous bass line it's sinister and it just adds to the dark ambiance that surrounds that song um basically it's about every noir character that was ever trapped in a dead-end town and trying to get out um when i wrote the article i was reminded of jim thompson's a hell of a woman i was reminded of stan carlisle in nightmare alley Elizabeth Scott's Jane Palmer in Too Late for Tears. All of these people who are trapped in these towns and want something better and need to get out. And that's basically the sensibility behind We Gotta Get Out of This Place. What's interesting about the song, too, is that it became the anthem of the soldiers in Vietnam, which was understandable. We gotta get out of this place if it's the last thing we ever do. And another strain of film noir with the um, Southern California, L.A.-based stories, um, certainly in classic rock, one of the bands most associated with that geography and a lot of their lyrics was The Doors. And uh, one of my favorite songs by them is one that you covered in the article, Moonlight Drive, where one of the, one of the verses from the, beginning of, from the very beginning of the song, they sing, Let's swim out tonight, love. It's our turn to try. Park beside the ocean on our moonlight drive. And all the lyrics around that, which we'll hear a little later in this episode, 
it seems to come almost directly out of uh, the postman always rings twice there's the scenes where they go out to the ocean and especially right near the end they go out there at night and they're alone and they're swimming all the way out into the ocean it's almost directly what uh, the doors are talking about and mixing the um, sexual attraction and the threat of death and all that stuff all kind of coming together in just the way that uh, James M. Cain wrote about and um, and that was in the classic movie as well with John Garfield and Lana Turner yeah, I I like to say that the Rolling Stones predicted the darkness and the Doors embraced it. Their music was about as dark as anyone's in the 60s, and maybe the Rolling Stones were their rivals in that respect, and that's about it. The Doors kind of uh, monopolized the dark side of rock and roll. Uh, there's a, You know the old saying, there are two certainties in life, uh, death and taxes. Well, with the Doors, their certainties were death and sex, and Moonlight Drive has both. Um, it begs the question, what is going on here? Morrison is singing about swimming out to the ocean, as you said, getting real close, getting real tight, and then drowning tonight. And you're thinking, all right, are they drowning in sex, or are they drowning for real? And his lethargic vocal, which builds to this screaming crescendo, kind of begs that question. Um, he's either simulating orgasm or he's simulating a drowning death. And then you've got Robbie Krieger's guitar, and Robbie Krieger was one of the best guitarists of the 1960s, overshadowed by Morrison and some of his onstage antics. But Krieger was probably out of that group the only real pure musician that they had. And he wrote a lot of the songs, and he plays this burbling bottleneck guitar that makes it that sounds like he's actually descending into a watery grave while he's playing the guitar as if he himself is drowning with the guitar strapped to himself so you've got that entire watery descent going on there and that question of whether or not morrison is singing about sex or death or maybe both but either way as you said it's either their most noir song or certainly one of their most noir songs among many, many dark songs that they wrote and performed. And at the end of your article, you had a list of 20 songs that you had picked out and written about uh, in that article, and you mentioned, hey, let's uh, debate these or inviting people to come up with their own. So as we were preparing for this episode, I thought, well, why don't I pick out one, one of my favorites that I had never thought about before as a noir song, but that could fit. And I pretty quickly hit on one, which is by the Hollies from the early 1970s, their last big hit, Long Cool Woman in a Black Dress. And there was an article from it just last year where um, a couple of the guys in the band talked about their inspiration for the song. They talked a little bit about old gangster movies. And I think maybe they were kind of mixing those up a little bit with sort of gangster movies, but I think they were also thinking of some noir films. Because lyrics talk about um, this guy who's working for the FBI, and there are some lyrics of sitting in a nest of bad men, whiskey bottles piling high, bootlegging boozer on the west side, full of people who are doing wrong. Just about to call up the DA man when I heard this woman singing a song. And they go on to sing about this long, cool woman in a black dress, which sounds a lot like Ava Gardner in a lot of the noir films or uh, many other femme fatales. So it all comes together in a very noir sort of atmosphere that's familiar from tons of these old films. It's interesting that you say that, because when I read the article and listened to the song again, you were, I found that you were absolutely correct. 
it wasn't something that was on my mind, and I didn't even connect it with noir back when it first came out. It was a huge hit, and it was, you heard it all over the radio, and you heard it everywhere. And what's interesting about that song, and in addition to what you just mentioned, is that it's probably the, the only pure rock and roll song the Hollies ever did. They were known for Beatles-style upbeat pop of a superior nature for sure, but still they were always singing on the funny side. Long Cool Woman is the exception. And you're right, it is very noirish. an article you wrote from the Noir City Magazine number 19 issue, which is called Shoot Out the Lights, Nicholas Muzaraka, about one of the great cinematographers of noir. So let's read from the intro to the article that you wrote. The intro is, there's a scene in Out of the Past that literally defines the noir femme fatale. Kathy Moffat, played by Jane Greer, walks out of the sunlight into a Mexican cantina to greet Jeff Bailey, Robert Mitchum. The right side of her face is lit with an exquisite glow. The left side is shrouded in shadow, as if dusted in charcoal. No dialogue is needed. The camera alone reveals Kathy's deceptive, duplicitous persona. The man behind the camera is Nicholas Muzaraka, perhaps Noir's greatest cinematographer. Some may argue that John Alton's legacy supersedes Muzaraka's. Yet, Muzaraka's career as a cameraman began in 1923, ten years before Alton's debut. By 1940, Muzaraka had already developed a distinct Noir style, well before Alton began prowling the mean streets. Among American noir cinematographers, Muzaraka was the first, the best, and certainly the darkest. So that's quite an intro to uh, a name that comes up, I think, for noir fans once you start getting into the old movies and hearing about some of the cinematographers, but there doesn't seem to be a whole lot really written about him, either personally or looking over his career, maybe just a little bit of stuff here and there. So you wrote a survey of the noir films that he did, and also kind of how he got into the movies, although there really isn't a whole lot known about that either, right? Yeah, it, he was a very private man. So there was virtually nothing that I saw about his personal life. He gave one interview to the editor of American Cinematographer magazine in 1941, where he basically discussed his approach to cinematography. Nothing personal was mentioned in it. Um, I really wanted to do this article and I realized that with that intro, I may have stuck my neck out a little bit because John Alton is generally the one that is celebrated as the master of noir cinematography. But I wanted to point out that Musaraka had been there first and stayed in it longer and stayed with noir longer than Alton did and longer than just about any of his contemporaries did. Um, he started out in 
1913 when he went to New York and he went to Vitagraph Studios and he began working for J. Stewart Blackton, who was a producer and director at Vitagraph Studios. But he always wanted to get behind the camera. He started out as Blackton's chauffeur, but Blackton soon saw him as a very quick study and put him behind the camera. And he lensed nine films as a very young man under Blackton's direction. He also was there when Robertson Cole eventually morphed into RKO Studios. So he was there from the beginning with regard to the evolution of RKO and the development of RKO Studios. And yeah, with RKO, uh, Eddie Muller many times has referred to that studio as the House of Noir. In the mid to late 40s in particular, they really made more movies that we now know as noir that were great and successful more than any of the other studios at that time. And Muzaraka, as you're just mentioning now, was there from the very founding of the studio, not just when they started doing noir, but when they actually came into existence. Exactly. And his imprint is on every noir that RKO released. His first one, his first noir, of course, was Stranger on the Third Floor, which was released in 1940. And that, in the opinion of many, is the first American noir and the first film to convey the dark noir sensibility as we know it. What he does with that film is create a very bleak portrait of urban decay. Bleaker than anyone had ever done before. Bleaker than anyone had ever shot before. The grimy underbelly of the city and the tedium of urban life. The dark tenements, the slums, the low lights, the barely lit streets, the gloomy rooming house that John McGuire's character lives in. All of this is captured by Muzaraka's ability to light a set and to compose images with the camera. This was something no one else had done up until that time. The lighting that he does is very agile. The framing that he does is very imaginative. He shoots street lamps, neon, blending darkness and light. When Peter Lorre's character shows up, he shrouds him in shadow and shines a light on his face. It's a, it's a, it's a high-key light that he shines on Lorre's face, and Lorre looks basically like a ghoul. But right away we get this persona of this lunatic walking the streets of New York, randomly committing acts of murder, and he looks like a monster and he's framed like a monster. So we've got all this urban blight. He's pioneered that. What he also pioneered was the hallucinatory image, the scene where John McGuire's character falls asleep and dreams that he is convict he's been convicted of murder. And Musaraka frames the scene as a terrifying nightmare. A giant electric chair awaits him. A giant intimidating courthouse awaits him. A courtroom awaits him. He's surrounded by hallucinatory images, wild, grotesque, geometric shapes, close-ups of frantic faces. And what, he, what Musaraka has done is basically capture the American justice system and how intimidating it is and how intimidating it is meant to be. <laughs> Everything is larger than life. Everything is terrifying. Everything is out of control. 
Musaraka conveys that very simply and very easily with just the lighting and the camera angles. And that film, as we're recording this, um, it's right before that movie is going to be on Noir Alley, on Turner Classic Movies, hosted by Eddie Muller. So by the time this episode is out, hopefully anyone, anyone listening will have had a chance to see that movie. And if you haven't, certainly check it out. It's a, a great and really startling early example of uh, film noir, as you detailed, which is largely due to the uh, brilliant cinematography and style that Musaraka brought to it. Yes, I think it's the early example of film noir, at least film noir as we know it. Uh, we, you know, we run articles in Noir City about silent films that have that noir sensibility. But this is, in my opinion, the first American film that conveys the noir sensibility as we know it and as we've grown to love it. Let's talk a little bit about um, a series of films at RKO that the studio now is very well known for from the early to mid-40s that also was a forerunner of a lot of the noir style and mixed in with it blending two different genres together, really, noir and horror, which was the series of movies overseen by the great producer Val Luton. And many of those were filmed by Musaraka, starting with the horror classic Cat People. It's interesting that they're called horror films, Haggai, because I don't consider them to be pure horror films. I think they're exemplary noirs, that one of which has a supernatural theme, the others don't. So, for me, there is no supernatural aspect to them. They are pure examples of film noir. Uh, it's interesting how these films developed and evolved. RKO was looking to compete with Universal, and Universal was the home of the classic horror film. But by the 1940s, the Universal films became very juvenile and more monster-oriented. They were running out of ideas, so they'd start teaming the Wolfman and the Frankenstein monster and Count Dracula all together in movies, trying to come up with new ways to present their famous characters. They had big budgets, they had lots of time to shoot, and they had Jack Pierce as their makeup man, who was a genius, but who was expensive. RKO didn't have that kind of money. Val Luton wasn't given that kind of money. He needed somebody who could shoot a film in a relatively brief period of time, for a relatively minuscule budget, and Musaraka was able to come through for him every time by spinning straw into gold, cat people being a perfect example. We don't have the Carpathian Mountains. We don't have monster makeup. We have subtlety. We have a film that is left to the audience's imagination, and it was a hit. Cat people is even more refined, in my opinion, than Stranger on the Third Floor. Musaraka, instead of consistently keeping us in the dark, brings us into the light a little bit. We see gray clouds. We see fog. We see dimly lit streets, but we also see snow. We see reflections in water. All of these things were done by Musaraka without the use of filters, in the simplest way that he knew how, because his quote always was, why not do it the simple way? Why not do it without filters? Why not use as much natural light as we can? In addition, what I love about Musaraka's work in Cat People is that he gauges the camera to match the tempo of the characters, especially the lead character, played by Simone Simone. She is a woman who is cursed and turns into a Black Panther whenever her emotions run high, 
whenever she feels jealousy, whenever she feels sexual arousal. She is cursed by falling in love with a man who loves her back, but eventually cannot deal with the paranoia and the suspicion that surrounds her, and he moves to another woman. And when he does that, the jealousy comes out, and Musaraka turns up the tempo in two key scenes especially, both of which involve Simone Simone's character, Irena Dubrovna, pursuing her rival, her romantic rival, Alice Moore, played by Jane Randolph. The first scene involves Irena chasing Alice through Central Park. Musaraka focuses on the feet of both women. They're clicking high heels. Alice suddenly realizes that she's being pursued and that she's being pursued by something not human. We see Irena's heels. The camera shows us her shoes, but eventually the camera shows us the shoes morphing into cat paws. Irena has turned into a panther. She's pursuing Alice Moore. And Alice is running through the streets, and as the panic builds, Musaraka amps up the camera, and the chase quickens steadily until it becomes just a panic-stricken run through Central Park, broken only by the sound of a bus, which Alice boards before Arena has a chance to get her claws into her. It's a brilliant scene, and Musaraka plays it for all it's worth, and moves the camera along with the tempo of the women's feet. It's a beautifully done scene. The other beautifully done scene is another predatory scene in which Arena is stalking Alice in a swimming pool. Alice decides to take a midnight dip in a swimming pool. It's an indoor pool. It's barely lit. And all of a sudden, the lights go out everywhere except in the pool. Musaraka lights the pool. The rest of the scene is shrouded in darkness. Something is pursuing Alice again. This time, she's trapped in a swimming pool. She doesn't have the street to run through. She doesn't have a bus to jump onto and escape. There's no escape. She's in a swimming pool, and she's absolutely vulnerable. She hears growling. She hears these furtive noises. She sees shadows reflected off the water in the pool. She's looking around, panic-stricken. She knows somebody is there or something is there with her. She doesn't know what it is. And just as her panic reaches its pitch, Irena flicks the light on, crosses her arms, and stares down at her at the pool. It's beautifully done. And what's interesting, too, is the idea for the scene was uh, developed by Jacques Tourneur, the director of Cat People, who himself is responsible for many great noirs, Turner got the idea because he himself was in a friend's swimming pool when a pet cheetah got loose in the house, and he himself felt trapped. And so he developed that scene, and Musaraka shot it beautifully. And it is Simone Simone's favorite cinematic moment, and the favorite cinematic moment not only of several fans of film noir, but several horror fans as well. This cat people out of all the Luton films is, to me, the one that is closest to a pure horror film because it deals directly with the supernatural. So then after Cat People, there were several several other Luton films that Musaraka filmed that you cover in your article as well, including the 
quote-unquote sequel, which wasn't really a sequel, called uh, The Curse of the Cat People, as well as um, The Seventh Victim, which is a really weird, chilly story that doesn't have anything supernatural at all in it and is is very much noir in its feel and uh, in its themes that it covers. Yes, and it's probably the darkest of the Luton-Musaraka collaborations. It's very low-lit. It's again, takes place in the city. Um, it, again, deals with urban blight, but it's much darker, even than Cat People. There are, there's also a chase scene in it, in which Gene Brooks's character is being chased by a killer hired by a satanic cult, and she is walking through very dark streets. There are scenes of other characters walking through dark apartment houses, dark hallways, um, it's, it's a film that's almost shrouded in darkness. But then there are these small scenes that Musaraka shoots where people are looking out a window, a, a skylight, and they see a searchlight combing the city. And it's sort of this penumbra of light and night, and it's beautifully shot. Every once in a while, that darkness is punctuated by a bit of light, and it creates a beautiful scenario. Spiral Staircase is a full-bore fright fest. Uh, it's film noir, but it's creepy. And what it does is combine the creakiness of the classic horror genre with film noir, particularly with regard to his shots of the killer's eye, focusing on the intended victims. It's, in my opinion, based on my knowledge, the first time a cameraman has captured voyeurism in film. It presages Rear Window. It presages Michael Powell's Peeping Tom. It presages Norman Bates's sneak peek at Janet Lee and Psycho. I can't think of another film that treated voyeurism in this manner prior to the spiral staircase. And it's strictly due to Musaraka's imaginative camera work. Uh, the film is lit fantastically well, mostly by candlelight punctuated by occasional flashes of lightning to create an indelible atmosphere and an unforgettable mood. But it's that voyeurism that always stuck with me. I said to myself, well, who did this before Musaraka? Who, no one. Hitchcock, Powell, all of them copied Musaraka, and he inspired them. And finally, you have The Hitchhiker, where Musaraka just takes us into the desert. A raw, very ugly journey that Ida Lupino specifically tapped him for. She knew when she shot The Hitchhiker that she was going to have a limited budget and a limited shooting time. She knew Musaraka would be the perfect cameraman to deliver the goods, and he does. We are in that car with those men. We feel their grime. We smell their sweat. We can relate to the panic that Edmund O'Brien and Frank Lovejoy are feeling while they watched William Tallman in the back seat with that cyclopean eye of his floating in the darkness. This is what Musaraka does. He puts us in the car with these guys. And we feel it every inch of the way. And that was his talent. His ability to get inside characters and make us feel what they're feeling. Thank you.
sturdy old part of the city Where the sun refused to shine People tell me there ain't no use in trying Now my girl, you're so young and pretty And one thing I know is true You'll be dead before your time is due one of your articles from Noir City issue number eight, which was called Two-Bit Crimes, How Comics Became Adult Entertainment. And the intro to that article is, exactly when did film noir begin to leap from film stock to drawing board? Opinions may vary, but a strong argument can be made for the date of April 21st, 1954. It was a dark and stormy day, at least in the storied history of comic book publishing. You could also call it the day the comics died. On that fateful day, William M. Gaines, publisher of EC Comics, testified before Estes Kefauver's Senate Subcommittee to investigate juvenile delinquency. So before reading this article, I, uh, not knowing a whole lot about comics, I really had no idea that comics had faced censorship and interest from all the way into Congress coming after them, similar to the way that, um, I mean, the movies had first faced censorship back in the 20s and then the 30s, and then late 40s, early 50s, of course, there was the blacklist. And um, with a spike in teenage crime around that time in the early 50s, it wasn't very long before Congress jumped in and blamed everything on comic books, which is a pretty crazy story that I think a lot of people, uh, I certainly had no idea that that all had happened. And the people who in large part were at the center of it were the heads of EC Comics, as per your article, that stood for Entertaining Comics. Um, so tell us some about that company and how they got involved right in the middle of all this uh, craziness. EC Comics was initially founded and run by a man named Max Gaines. And ironically, EC Comics started out as publishers of biblical stories in comic book form. Max Gaines decided he would take stories from the Bible and illustrate them as comic books and publish them in comic book form. And he wasn't having too much success with it. <clears throat> and then suddenly Max Gaines was killed in a boating accident. And the family wondered what was going to happen to the EC imprint. And his son, Bill Gaines, who had no interest in comics whatsoever and really didn't want any part of the company, was kind of forced into taking the helm and running the company. And as it turns out, he ran it very, very well, up to a point. What Bill Gaines decided to do was scrap the biblical angle and start 
running a series of crime comics. This was after World War II. Veterans were returning from the war. They had seen horrifying things and horrifying images, and they were somewhat hardened to life and were able to absorb and actually appreciate darker, harder-edged stories and comic books. In addition, kids gravitated toward them. Now, they started out with simple crime comics, not a lot of gore, not a lot of blood, no horror. Stories about murderers, stories about bank robbers, noir stuff to be sure, but a lot more mundane than what they ended up doing. Eventually, Bill Gaines decided that since the crime comics were selling moderately well, but not that well, he was going to switch over to what he called a new trend. And he was going to start running horror comics and genuinely dark, creepy, supernatural horror stories. Stories about resuscitated corpses crawling out of graves. Stories about men decapitating their wives. Accompanying those stories were some of the most, gra- were some of the most graphic images that ever appeared in a comic book. He was absolutely breaking new ground. When he called it a new trend, he was kind of being subtle. This was more than a new trend. This was groundbreaking work. And he hired a bullpen of the most brilliant comic book artists that ever lived. People like Johnny Craig, Graham Ingalls, Jack Davis, Jack Kamen, Reed Crandall, Al Williamson. The list is endless. All of them were brilliant artists. His partner in crime was Al Feldstein, who wrote practically all of the stories. And they developed three horror comics, Tales from the Crypt, The Vault of Horror, and The Haunt of Fear. Each book had its own, as they called it, ghoulunatic, a character that was drawn by an artist to introduce the story and actually bookend each story do a prologue, do an epilogue, always with a sarcastic sneer. The stories themselves always had ironic twists. Sometimes people got away with murder, sometimes they didn't. The important thing was that each artist had his own style. Gaines didn't go for a, quote, house style, unquote. He let these guys draw the art and perform the art their way. And each one had his own style. Johnny Craig had a very razor-sharp style, very naturalistic. You believed the story, no matter how fantastic it was. Graham Ingalls, who was my personal favorite, drew exaggerated faces, specialized in drawing rotting corpses crawling out of graves, specialized in people with tortured, panicked looks on their faces, ready to be decapitated, ready to be murdered in some ghastly, grisly way. In fact, his nickname was Ghastly Graham Ingalls. So each artist had his own style, and Gaines welcomed it. He basically said to these guys, do it your way. Deliver it to me on time, but maintain your own style. The books and the stories got gorier and gorier and more and more graphic. One of the most famous stories is a story called Foul Play, 
where a baseball team takes revenge on a member of a rival team who has murdered one of their teammates. They get hold of him, murder him, disembowel him, and use his body parts for the bases on the field. His heart is home plate. His liver is first base. His lungs are the second base. This was about 1950. The, the, the book started around 1950. By 1954, as you said, crime was on the rise in America. Juvenile delinquency was an issue. Drug addiction was an issue. Who to blame? Let's find a scapegoat. Who can we blame other than ourselves? Well, let's blame the comic books. In conjunction with that, a psychiatrist by the name of Frederick Wortham published a book called Seduction of the Innocent, in which he argued, based on no proof whatsoever, that there was a direct link between teenage crime, juvenile delinquency, drug addiction, and horror comics. And who was the biggest purveyor of horror comics? EC. They were the biggest offenders, even though there were many other competitors that jumped on the horror bandwagon after EC tasted success. But EC was the main purveyor of horror comics. In addition, Bill Gaines very shrewdly had a distribution arrangement with news uh, stands and stores. Because his comics sold so well, he was able to get them prominently displayed on the shelves of stores and newsstands so that they would pop right out at any kid, or any adult for that matter, that was willing to fork over a dime for one of their comic books. Well, that was fodder for Estes Kefauver, who was this do-gooder senator that decided that comic books were a prime target. Let's blame the comic book industry for what is going on in America. And this was right after he had uh, become famous for busting the mafia in national hearings. So comic exactly. books, I guess, to him were an equal threat to society as uh, organized crime. That's right. And he was seduced by seduction of the innocent. Wortham became a friendly witness in front of Kefauver. Gaines didn't want any part of it. He absolutely wanted to defend his brand and defend horror comics in general. He was determined to do that. And he prepared a meticulously organized, meticulously researched defense to present to the Kefauver Committee. The problem occurred when he got to Congressional Hall. He had been on Dexedrine for weight loss. He was very tired. He had been up all night with insomnia. He was nervous. And Kefauver really started to grill him and incessantly questioned him and didn't let up. He was on the witness stand for, I believe, hours. And I think the turning point came when Kefauver held up a copy of a book that EC published called Crime Suspense Stories, which was not a horror book. But Johnny Craig had drawn the cover for the book, and it showed a man with a hatchet in one hand and his wife's decapitated head in the other hand, dripping blood from the neck and from the mouth. And he holds up this cover, and he shows it to everyone in the audience and shows it to Gaines and says, do you really believe that this cover art is in good taste? And Gaines stumbled. He evaded the question. He couldn't answer it properly. He groped for words. In hindsight, what he should have said was, no, it's not in good taste. That's the whole point. This is art. And art isn't always in good taste. 
neither is freedom of expression. Let the public decide what they want. Let adults decide what they want. And if they don't want these comics in their house, they don't have to have them in the house. But he didn't say that. He couldn't answer the question, and Keith Over nailed him. And as a result of that, Gaines walked out hanging his head in shame, and while Congress couldn't censor the comics because of First Amendment principles, they could force the comic book industry to censor itself, and that's what happened. Gaines's competitors, along with EC Comics, created the Comics Code, which basically said that you couldn't have any gore in comics, couldn't have any violence in comics, and you couldn't use the words horror, terror, or crime as the title of a comic or as the title of a comic book story. So yeah, this was kind of parallel to the production code that the movies had been forced to institute about 20 years earlier in the mid-1930s exactly. after the threat of censorship. But the production code didn't eliminate movies. What happened with the comics code was basically EC had to end its horror line completely, and there were no more horror comics. All of the horror comics folded. EC stopped its horror comics, and... Gaines looked at the comics code and said, wait a minute, this is the comics code. It applies to comics. It doesn't apply to magazines. What if I took these same writers and these same artists and developed something in a magazine format? The comics code can't touch it. Kefauver can't touch it. This is what I'm going to do. And he created the Pictofiction line, which was truly noirish black and white images created by the very artists that had done his comic books written by the same writers that had done that had written his comic book stories focusing on crime very noirish images done in pencil graphite grease pencil and instead of focusing on rotting corpses coming out of graves they focused on two-timing women femme fatales Husbands murdering their wives, husband greedy men, greedy women, the stuff of film noir. And you mentioned the, the words that were banned from the cover of children's comics like shock and crime. But once EC moved into these adult magazines, they just started calling them shock illustrated and crime illustrated. So that was exactly. a pretty direct the... end run around the, around the censorship in a pretty transparent way, but they still got away with it. Exactly. Um, and those were the two books that focused mostly on the kinds of things that film noir fans would appreciate, the kinds of stories that they'd like. Um, not supernatural so much as real life, really believable crimes, murders, kidnappings, robberies, that sort of thing. There are two stories that really stand out, especially with regard to film noir. One of them is The Lipstick Killer, which was actually the debut story in um, Shock Illustrated Number 1, which came out in September 1955. It was the very first story in the Pictofiction line. Actually, I'm sorry, it's in Shock Illustrated Number 2. Great cover by Rudy Nappy, which shows this very frustrated, very tortured young man sitting next to uh, the corpse of a young lady that he has just killed. And the story is called The Lipstick Killer. And... He is desperate to get help for this mania that he has for killing young women, rummaging through their lingerie, 
He scrawls messages in lipstick on the mirrors of the homes that he invades, saying, help me, don't let me do this again. And he is finally led away to a prison cell, getting life imprisonment. And at the close of the story, the cell door clangs behind him. He starts having hallucinations, screaming, moaning, beating his fists against the metal bars. And that's how the story ends. What's interesting is it is very similar to a film Fritz Lang did in 1956 called While the City Sleeps, in which John Barrymore Jr. plays a young man who is named, coincidentally enough, the Lipstick Killer. And he is basically the same type of character portrayed in the E.C. Pictofiction book. The interesting thing is Lang didn't know anything about E.C.'s Pictofiction, and Bill Gaines didn't know anything about Lang's film until 1972. So is it just a coincidence? Apparently it is. But the similarities between Lang's film and the story in Shock Illustrated are unmistakable. Yeah, something in, it, in, something in the air at the time. And the, um, the whole stop me before I kill again kind of drive of the, uh, the deranged killer. Also a few years earlier in, in noir, you had The Sniper, the great classic set in San Francisco, which had a similar kind of lead character um, the, kind of begging the police to, to find him and stop him. Exactly, exactly. There was something in the air. In my opinion, when Gaines finally saw the film, he probably found it very interesting. There's one scene in particular where Dana Andrews goes on television and calls him out and says to him, we know you're the lipstick killer. We know you read the comic books. And John Barrymore Jr. is watching Dana Andrews basically taunting him. And what is he reading in his hand? A copy of Tales from the Grip number 32. Now, when he drops it on the floor, it morphs into this fictitious comic called The Strangler. But in his hand is a genuine EC copy of Tales from the Crypt. So I always wondered, was Lang buying into Estes Kefauver's theory or Frederick Wortham's theory that there was a link between comic books and juvenile crime? Or was he just playing into the public's paranoia? Because while all this was going on, people were reacting to Kefauver and to Wortham. They were burning comic books. It was chilling reminder of what was going on in Nazi Germany in the 30s and 40s. So I always wondered, is Lang accepting Wortham's theory? Is Lang defending Kefauver? Or is Lang simply saying, this is in the air, as you said, and I'm going to run with it and try and exploit it. The other story that you mentioned is A Farewell to Arms, and that's a story that I particularly love. Um, it was in shock number four, which actually was never published. The pictofiction line had been dying, and the sales were really down, and Gaines decided that he was going to simply lay it aside and not publish the final issues of either Crime Illustrated or Shock Illustrated. And unfortunately, Farewell to Arms wasn't seen by very many people. And it's a terrific story. Plot is simple. A young man decides to woo and marry his roommate's mother, matronly woman, much older than him, 
very corpulent, but very wealthy. He murders her, basically so he can obtain the inheritance that she's left him in her will. But now what to do with the body? She has a house by the ocean, so he decides that he is going to take the body, put it on his back, march down the beach, drop it into the ocean. The beach house that is the setting for the story is drawn by Reed Crandall. And if you look at the splash page, the introductory page to that story, that beach house looks identical to the one that Albert Decker lives in at the end of Kiss Me Deadly. And those concluding scenes in Kiss Me Deadly occur at that beach house. And that beach house is lit and drawn by Reed Crandall, identical to the way Ernest Laszlo shot it for Kiss Me Deadly. There's the surrounding darkness. There's the white sand on the beach that contrasts with the darkness. And in Kiss Me Deadly, you see Ralph Meeker and Velda, Maxine Cooper, running out away from the nuclear explosion that's occurring in the beach house. And in Farewell to Arms, you see the lead character carrying this corpse on his back. The corpse is not only overweight, the corpse is starting to go into rigor mortis. So as the corpse stiffens, the arms of the corpse wrap around the lead character as he's carrying her into the ocean. So what he thinks is going to be an easy disposal turns out basically to lead to his doom because the corpse weighs him down and he drowns. Kind of a mix of Edgar Allan Poe and film noir, like a little crossover there. Edgar Allan Poe and film noir, exactly. Except without that uh, that additional uh, shred of guilt that Poe wrote into some of his story. This guy just wants to quickly dispose of a corpse, and he gets his just desserts, which occurred in most DC stories. A lot of them had ironic twists, but most of the time, people got what they deserved at the end. The, and you mentioned earlier, so some of the, one of the lines that EC Comics had that was uh, stopped in the mid-50s, but is still very famous today, is of course Tales from the Crypt, which that name, that brand, was also used for a television show with a running series for many years, and the image of the Crypt Keeper is still one that you see all the time online, and I see people making references to that here and there, yeah, but, now and then. Yeah, the Crypt Keeper was created by Al Feldstein initially. Each uh, horror book that EC produced had its own, as I said, host or ghoul lunatic. Tales from the Crypt had the Crypt Keeper. Uh, the Vault of Horror had the Vault Keeper. And The Haunt of Fear had the Old Witch. The Old Witch was drawn by Graham Ingalls. And Johnny Craig, I believe, drew the Vault Keeper. And they were a fantastic addition to the books because they would set up the story with a very sardonic, snide prologue, <clears throat> and then end it with an equally sardonic, sarcastic epilogue. And there was always a little bit of a pun or a little bit of a twist in their conclusions to the stories. Just a nice bookend uh, to, each, uh, to each story and just a brilliant uh, concept that Gaines came up with. Before I say anything else about EC, I'll also say that to Gaines's credit, he kept a lot of the art that his artists created. Most comic book companies just disposed of the art, threw it away, threw it into a furnace. He kept the art. 
because he knew that it was truly art. It wasn't pulpy junk that had to be disposed of or discarded so it wouldn't clutter up the office. He really appreciated it for what it was, even if his artists sometimes did not. Eventually, EC got out of the horror crime um, shock comics and magazines, but as you uh, end the article with, one of the writers who you mentioned, Al Feldstein, he was writing under the alter ego occasionally of Alfred E. Newman, and that is indeed the uh, the mascot of Mad Magazine, which they also founded and which, uh, of course, still exists today. Well, yeah, and that's that's the the the, the, uh, the fantastic ending to the EC story, the fact that they were down and out back when Max Gaines was publishing the Bible stories, achieved probably the summit of comic book fame when they published their horror books, then sank back into obscurity with the pictofiction books, unfortunately, and then, like a phoenix, rose again with Mad Magazine. And Mad Magazine is still going strong to this day. It was the, the bane of every school teacher. Every elementary school teacher hated Mad Magazine because we used to smuggle them into school and read them when we should have been taking notes and doing our homework. So definitely not a noir ending for EC, but uh, certainly still subversive for all these decades. And uh... That's a good way to put it. EC was a subversive company. <laughs> Showing a side of society that doesn't always uh, get uplifted as the <laughs> best example for people to follow, just like Phil Noir. Brilliant satire. I mean, you could, you could spend a whole hour talking about the influence, how Mad Magazine influenced comedy in America. Now, from Saturday Night, from Bernie Kovacs to Saturday Night Live to everything that we have today, uh, Mad Magazine was the start. Uh, they were willing to uh, puncture the balloon a bit. And the Marx Brothers probably contributed to that, too, but Mad Magazine really did a great job with it. Okay, so with that twist ending for uh, a really interesting um, look back at a particular period in the history of comic books that overlaps so closely with film noir, we, uh, I guess, we'll leave things there. So, Steve Cronenberg, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Haggai. It was a pleasure. Thank you very much. Let's swim to the moon. Uh-huh. Let's climb through the tide. Penetrate the evening that the city sleeps too high. Let's swim out tonight, love. It's our time to try. Heart beside the ocean on our Thanks again to Steve Cronenberg for joining us. Our podcast is available on iTunes and on SoundCloud. You can receive all the latest news about the work of the Fillmore Foundation by signing up in their email list at fillmorefoundation.org. You can also get updates by following the FNF on social media at Fillmore Foundation on Facebook and Tumblr and at Noir Foundation on Twitter. And if you have any feedback for the podcast, please rate and review our show on iTunes or you can contact us via email at podcast at fillmorefoundation.org. We'll be back next month with another episode. And until then, thanks for joining us here on War Talk. Oh,